Amen? Amen. You know, the Lord says, I, I set before you life and death. And the choice is ours. We have this decision, this choice, and in every day we have choices that we make that have implications into our future, into our history, or what will become one day our history. And these choices have implications in that. And we have all got to understand that, that what we choose today to do, it does matter. And, and it matters because God is watching. And I don't mean that like God's just over. I mean that like that if it didn't matter, God wouldn't be watching. But he watches because he cares, because he knows, because he can. And we're going to continue today in our, um, our, our study through the revelation, the letters to the churches, to the seven churches. And we are in the fifth letter to the fifth church that we have here, and that is the letter. It's in Revelations chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. You can go to the uh, app and open that up. You open that up in your Bible. Open that up and uh, you read through that with me. It is a letter to the church at Sardis. Now, before I get into that, I want to get into a little bit of what was happening. What was the historical background of some of these things? And I think it's important for us to know a little bit about the temple of Artemis that was in Sardis. Sardis, Turkey, I was looking at pictures. It's, it's hard. You can see all the archaeological pictures if you look up the you know, Sardis and you look up all the pictures and do some background search, you'll find a lot of things and about a lot of the different uh, buildings and the archaeological digs that are there. But if you just look at like the countryside, it's an absolutely beautiful place. It is at the foot of the mountains in Turkey there. It's a, a, a beautiful place. It's green. It's luscious. Uh, a lot of wonderful things there. Honestly, when I was looking at it, it reminded me of here, like Tooele, at the bottom, at the base of these beautiful mountains, and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful place. Well, back in the time of the New Testament, when this was all being, you know, looked at in this time here, the city of Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. It was a big place. It was upwards of 30,000 people that were living in this little town, this little place, 30,000 people at that time was a big city. Many people came, much of that population came as a result of a gold rush. There had been rumors that there was gold found in the region of Sardis, and so people, just like they did in California, they had a, a, the Sardis gold rush, and so people were flocking to Sardis because they had all these hopes and dreams of striking it rich, of making a fortune, and many people did. There was a lot of people that found gold because there was, in fact, gold to be found in that area. And I was, again, just a side note, it's uh, interesting that they, many of the commentators, historians, uh, they tie the, you know, the myth of the Midas, the, myth, the golden touch, that whole thing, that all comes from this region of, of Sardis because of all of the gold and all of the things that they had found there. Today, there's nothing more than just a handful of very small villages, and the glory that was once the city of Sardis is no more. But in that day, it was a magnificent place. 
They are finding all sorts of ruins. That They had this gigantic, huge, beautiful gymnasium that was made. They had outdoor amphitheaters. They, it was a place where they had all sorts of things that were going on. There was a giant, one of the largest in the entire region, Jewish synagogues that they have found, and the, 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 which again means that there was a large Jewish population in this area. And there's ongoing digs that are going on. One of the ongoing digs that is going on archaeologically is on the Temple of Artemis. And I, I thought it was important for us to take a little bit of time so that we can understand. Not certainly that I want you to focus on the Temple of Artemis, but I do want you to understand historically what was happening in the area and in the region, and what's the mindset that was going on as they were people in this area here. And so, uh, again, if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, if you're going to have a deeper understanding of the, of the book of Ephesians, you, you've got to understand about the temple because much of Paul's teaching, much of what Paul in the entire New Testament, in fact, two-thirds of the New Testament comes out of this area that is today modern-day Turkey. So we have to understand that he was talking about what he was preaching about in all of these areas and what was happening in the region in that day. And much of what was happening set in, the, in the area, in that place, was centered around two large pagan temples. Two large temples dedicated to Artemis. We talked about the first one in the first letter, which was written to the church at Ephesus. And in, in Ephesus, there is a, the, some remains of a temple of Artemis. There's not really much there to see, a couple of pillars, and that's about all that's left. And then there is the second temple that was built to Artemis, and that was here in Sardis, uh, a magnificent temple dedicated to Artemis. And uh, again, beautiful, beautiful structure, beautiful things that they're finding in this. But we have to understand the way that things worked in that day. And in that day, as I started to look and to study into some of these things, you know, the temple was not just simply like the church, what we might think of it here like this. The temple had so much more, so many multiple functions that it was used for in that time. The temple in that day was used politically because they wanted to find favor with the emperor, with the rulers to be. The temple had, it was used financially. In that day, most of the like banking was done in the temple because the temple was where the money had come. The temple was where this money changing needed to happen. It was where so much of the finances and the financial things that were happening were going on and they would go through the temple. It was almost like the temple bank, which again, as I was thinking about all that, I can imagine that's probably why it felt so natural when the temple at Jerusalem was built and they just brought money changers in and, and people like, because that's what you do in the temple. Obviously, Jesus had different thoughts about that. Amen? Amen. And also, the temple was a place that was used spiritually. It was a place where people would come from far away. People would come to see this. They'd make pilgrimages to give homage to whoever it was that their god or, or their goddess was. And in that region, there was upwards of 50 different gods and goddesses that were worshipped at that time. And so there were smaller temples. There was all sorts of different places that people would go to worship. But there was this big God, and the big, the big little G God was Artemis. 
Now, when it comes to Artemis, what had happened in that day was that they had taken a number of different religions, a number of different beliefs, and they had brought them together. You had the gods of the Greeks. You had the gods of the Romans. You had the god of the, of the area that was there. The, the region that they were in was called Anatolia, the region of Anatolia. And in the region of Anatolia, they had their own gods as well. And so they brought all of these different gods all together in this region, and all of these gods and goddesses were worshipped then in, in one place. So you had the goddess Diana, you had the goddess Artemis, you had the goddess Sabeli, and, and all of these goddesses were brought together and they were worshipped, and they became in that area very, very powerful. I mean, the, the whole demonic worship, it became very powerful in a number of different ways, politically, financially, spiritually, there was this demonic over cloud over the entire region because of how powerful they became. Even in the, in the Anatolians, in the, those that were in that region that were uh, native to the region that we're talking about here, these, where the Turks came from, they worshipped specifically at that time the great mother goddess. The great mother goddess. And so, again, we think that this new age movement is new. It's not new. It was going on way back, 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 back when this was all going on and even before. And so like when we would say Mother Earth, they would say Mother Goddess. And they had this belief that she essentially, she was the one who gave birth to us all. She's the one who provided for us all. She's the one who gives us life. And still today, there are, are women, there are people in this region who still believe in Mother Goddess that she is the goddess of fertility, that she's the goddess of life. And so what they'll do is they will take portions of their dress if a, if a woman, say, wanted to get married or if a woman wanted to have children. She would take and tear off a piece of her dress and she would tie it to a tree or tie it to a bush thinking that she was paying homage to mother goddess. And the belief was that she would then, if her if she would have favor with them, with the goddess, that she would then find the ability to be married, the ability to get pregnant. And so it still continues to this day, whereas this worship of mother goddess. Well, what happened was then you've got the worship of Cybele and Diana and Artemis and mother goddess, and, and then they bring all of this together under the covering of, of, and basically calling it one female deity. And she is the big powerful deity at the time. She is the goddess, and she was worshipped in the region. And when people worshipped her, they were worshipping her and all of the other gods. It was very convenient for them, but it also created a very powerful demonic god. And she was powerful. She had the biggest temples, the biggest temples that were built that were built for her. The money that was given, they were it was given to her. And in the whole region, somehow it became where everybody was one way or another connected to the temple of Artemis. So again, I want you to see this. I want you to understand this because this is where these letters are coming from. So everybody was tied one way or another to these temples, whether it's financially or spiritually or politically, everybody was tied to the temple in one way or another. And the temple that... that we're talking about was the spiritual headquarters, the biggie, and it was the temple of Artemis. And let me just say flat out, the temple of Artemis was a place where it was filled with demonic activity. It was a place that was filled with ungodly, unholy things. 
Now, we all know that in the Bible, the Bible talks about the fact that, that you know, people are good, people are bad, there's, there's good, there's evil, and some people choose God, some people choose to love God, some people follow God, some people serve God, and, and in that place of following and serving God, that, those are people that become more and more walking in holiness, walking in righteousness. And we also know that there are those who don't love God. Our world is filled with people that have rejected God, rejected the idea of God, rejected the thought that there's a God, and they don't serve God. They don't want anything to do with God. And we see this happening. There's an increase in the growth of unholiness in people as such. Well, just like people, there are spirit beings. Think about this. Just like there are spirit beings, they're called angels, right? Angels were created beings, and they were created to serve and to glorify God. That's what those angels were created to do. And now we see that some angels are holy, and some angels are unholy. Some angels love the Lord, some hate the Lord. Some obey the Lord, some disobey. Some tell the truth, some tell lies. But church, angelic beings are powerful. They are. They are powerful. And so what happens is you get in a center like this where there's all this demonic activity from unholy spiritual beings and people would go there and people were having inside the temple at Artemis, they were having these powerful demonic encounters. They were experiencing all sorts of things. People, they would, they would go there and they would see dreams. That's why they're finding inside of the temple at Artemis, they've got even you know, rooms that are dedicated to dreams and dream interpretation. They would have these spiritual manifestations where, where the spirits would come and begin to speak to them and bring a, a brand new revelation. We're, we're still seeing those things that are happening still today. Many things that I believe, many things that we see in the way of false gods and false goddesses and false religions and cults came out of things such as this in this time where people were having these revelations. They were even experiencing healing. They were experiencing a lot of things, these profound, significant spiritual experiences. But church, let me tell you, in, under the covering of Artemis, it was all demonic. It was all demonic. It was all evil. And just like in our day, other religions, other cults, other false places that are, that are not worshiping Jesus Christ, they can have all kinds of significant experiences. And it happens all the time. They can have supernatural revelation. We can see, and they can experience supernatural healing. Miraculous power. Listen, just because those things happen does not mean it's from God. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that at all. That's why in 1 John, he very clearly says, test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. And so we are called to test the spirits. Well, I know there are those who, who say, well, I, you know, I don't need to worry about that because I don't believe in the demonic. Especially in this area. If that's the, what you think, the devil's already one with you. Because he's conceived a plan. He's considered a plan. And the plan that he has against you is simply this. If I can just get him to not believe in me, I've won. So church, that's a tactic of the enemy. And, so, and, and listen, what's really sad about Turkey today 
This is a beautiful place, a beautiful area. A lot of, I'm sure, very wonderful, beautiful people that are living there. And the sad thing is that it's still steeped and covered in demonic darkness. There are people still there that are chasing after false gods and false idols and, and involving themselves in all sorts of cultic activity. That's why in Turkey there's over 74 million people. Yet out of the 74 million people in all of Turkey, there's only about 3,500 evangelical Christians. So church... I mean, even, even I was reading about this, that even the Muslims, you know, there's a huge contingency of Muslims in Turkey. Well, again, you think, well, they're Muslims or Muslims, but that's not true. Just like Christians, you know what? Not every Christian is the same Christian with the same beliefs. And some are claiming to be Christians, yet they're not good Christians at all by the way that they act, by the way that they live. So you've got also in this area, you've got Muslims. And, and in Turkey, there are people that, that would call themselves Muslims. It's, it's, they would call themselves part of Islam. Yet it's Turkish Muslims. They're called Turkish Islam because what they've done is they've taken the Koran, but they've also then added to it part of their own pagan worship that's not a part of the Koran. They've added these things in. They've added in the worship of Mother Goddess. They've added in the worship of the environment. They added in, they begin to worship created things rather than the God who's created those things. And so this is the area, the region. And again, I, 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 why do I tell you this? Because I know that you've probably read this before and we read through this and sometimes when we read the scriptures, this is why it's so important that we learn how to study. This is why we're going through this on Wednesday nights, teaching how to study the word of God. Because it's important when we read it, it's like going through something and seeing it in black and white. But when you begin to study and begin to dig into it, it's like it brings color to it. It brings some life to it. But when you begin to look into the historical facts, you begin to look into the archaeological data, and what they're finding out and what it is that was historically going on. It's like bringing things into high definition. And so all of a sudden, the word starts to make sense in areas that we just didn't think that made sense before. I never understood that before because I didn't have a, a no understand the depth of what was going on. And so that's why I wanted to bring some historical and cultural context to what was happening in this area here, in this region of Sardis. Because in this area, there were a lot of worshipers. But they weren't worshiping Jesus. There were a lot of Jews. They weren't worshiping Jesus. There was a lot of money that was given, and, and it wasn't given to Jesus. There were a lot of people there, but many were there just for the financial gain, just to come and to be a part of the, the gold rush. Not because they loved the Lord. But, and we'll get to this, apparently, in the midst of all of this, there was a church. This little church at Sardis. And, and there was obviously a church that was there. And it had some people in there. And it had some people that at a time when this church was birthed were faithful to the Lord. Faithful to love the Lord. Faithful to what the Lord had called them to do. The gospel had come to Sardis. And it came after Pentecost. Again, I want you to remember that this church is a New Testament church. 
Spirit-filled church. This is after Pentecost, and the gospel had come to Sardis. Now, whether the gospel came directly from Jerusalem through a, through a, a missionary, or whether somebody that was sent out from probably Ephesus that came to this region of Sardis, that they saw some people that believed, some people that began to accept the gospel, and they became Christians. And it's to that little group that God gives a word. Jesus gives this word to the church as Sardis. So John, he's exiled on this mountain in Patmos. He's been boiled in oil. I'm sure that he's blistered. He's lonely. And he's up on the top of this mountain inside of a cave. And it's Sunday morning. And he's worshiping. What good excuse can you come up with to not be in worship on a Sunday morning? John was worshiping. And what happens is that in the midst of that worship service, Jesus shows up. And Jesus comes into the middle of this worship service. Not the peasant Jesus, but the exalted Jesus, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And in his glorified state, he comes from heaven and, and, and he makes it very clear to John that from his vantage point of heaven, he's been looking down on Sardis. He's been watching them and he sees and knows exactly what's going on there. And this is what he writes to them. Let's, let's look into the scripture. In Revelations chapter 3, with that all being the background, this is what Jesus says to this church that is there at Sardis. Again, he, he begins with something that's very familiar. He says, into the angel of the church of Sardis. Again, in all seven letters, there are some things that are common to all seven churches, and one of them is this. He says, to the angel of the church. So therefore, that has got to be something that is very important. Otherwise, he would not have repeated it seven times to all seven churches. And he's telling us that not only is there human leadership in a church, but there's also spiritual leadership that he has given to oversee and to keep the church. Angelic spiritual leadership that he's given to each and every church. And we've got to understand this, that just because we don't see something doesn't mean it's not real. Okay, there is a whole realm that we cannot see. There's this veil that we have, this veil that we have in this world of to what we can see. Well, beyond the veil of what we can see, there's a whole nother world. There's a whole nother realm that, that's called the spiritual realm. And in that spiritual realm, there's a realm that we can't see, but it is supernatural. It's, it's not visible to us, but it is visible to God. That God not only sees everything and everyone that's going on here in this realm, he also knows sees and, and, and knows exactly what's going on with every being in the spiritual realm as well. And we've got to understand that just because we don't see it doesn't mean God does it. God sees it, and he knows what's going on. And in this spiritual realm, there are angels and there are demons. Demons are the fallen angels that have rebelled against God. They have committed against him not to follow him. They're fallen, and there's a supernatural battle that is constantly going on. There's a supernatural battle that's been happening in the heavenlies, even over the service here today, and over what you'll hear and what you'll receive and what it is that you'll, you'll let God speak into your heart. There's a battle that's going on in each and every one of our hearts. And the battle, that's the battle that's happening. The demons and angels are warring over your heart. 
They're warring over where your heart will be, what your heart will receive. And the supernatural battle is to protect the hearts, to protect your heart, to protect your family, to protect your legacy, to protect your city, to protect your state, to protect your nation, to protect our world, to protect the church. There's a war going on. And then Jesus, to each of the churches, he says, I have an angel, and I'm going to send that angel, and I've got at least one, it could be more, and I'm going to appoint that angel to oversee and to bring protection to the church. The reason that the enemy hasn't completely wiped us out is not because we're so strong and so powerful and so... It's because we have angelic beings that are fighting on our behalf in a realm that we cannot see and don't understand. So church, there are angels that are given to watch over the church. Now let me also say this. We don't pray to angels. We pray to Jesus. All right? And in all of this, we don't consult with angels. Okay? We consult with the Holy Spirit. And that's it. I do, we do believe in angels. We believe that God has them as ministers and messengers, that God uses them. And that's what these angels are doing. That's what they are. They're these supernatural spirit beings that give watch over the church to keep and to protect us. And they do war in the heavenlies against the demons that want to destroy us. And they're for us. And this, again, in the, in the realm of what they were going through with Artemis and all of this, it would have been extremely important for the people of Sardis to understand this, to understand, okay, I see you, I'm watching over you, I'm protecting you, there's an angel on, uh, that's on watch. And it's equally important for you and I to understand the same thing. Because the church in Tooele needs that just as much as the church in Sardis. And he goes on and he says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now again, I think this is interesting. I talked about this back, this is stated again to the church at Ephesus. And we talked about that in that day and in that age, there was a, an emperor named Domitian. And Domitian had declared himself to be God. He had declared himself, that he said, he said, I am Lord God and Savior. And the people were made to worship him because he declared as God that he was would be worshipped. And so he, in fact, he minted a coin with his image on it. And on that coin, Domitian was sitting on the earth amongst the seven stars in the heavens. And so he had made this coin and he had declared that he would be worshipped as God. And he was declaring on that coin that he was not just the God of this earth, but he was the God of heaven as well. And church, what's interesting is that the people knew that. See, Jesus, even from his ascended state, even from, from heaven, Jesus, he knew what was going on in Sardis. And not only did he know what was going on in the church, he also knew what was going on around the church. He also knew, he also knew that these people, that, that uh, Domitian had minted a coin and he knew that most of the people that he was going to write this letter to and as they read this letter, most of those people probably had a coin in their pocket. With Domitian on it. It'd be like today. I was trying to think of an example. So, you know, who, who's on the face of a $100 bill? <laughs> I... I've never seen one, so. 
anything bigger than a dollar Joni takes. <laughs> it, is a, it is Benjamin Franklin, right? What if Jesus wrote a letter to our church and he said, I am the God of the Benjamin Franklins. You know what? You go, whoa, wait a second. That sounds a lot like money. But I believe that God was really tying himself, connecting himself, even to our currency. There is nothing that God doesn't see and nothing that he doesn't care about. And what he's saying here to Domitian, he's declaring in this statement of many different things, but he's declaring, Domitian, you are not. Lord, God, and Savior. What you've called yourself, it's not true. I am Lord, God, and Savior. I am the exalted one. I overcame death, hell, and the grave. I am the one who was resurrected. I am the one who arose to the right hand of my Father. I am the one who rules over all of the earth and rules over all of the heavens. I am the God who rules even over you, Domitian. I am and this is what he's declaring. He's showing that he is supreme, that he is the exalted one. He is, he is not the peasant walking the streets of Jerusalem anymore. He is the resurrected king with eyes of fire and feet of bronze. He is a God that has been glorified. And he is the one who sits today in all power and all authority and all dominion. And there is nothing above him. His name is above every other name. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And he is declaring this today. Praise God. And he goes on and he says this. Now again, you got to remember, this is a New Testament church. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's not a compliment. I was trying to think of an example. I thought... You know, that'd be like me saying, hey, you know what? You have a reputation of being so nice. Yet I know you're actually mean and nasty. Come on. And that's what he's, he's saying here. He's saying, hey, you guys have a reputation of being nice, of being amazing. You have this reputation for being alive. But I know that you're really dead. And that's what Jesus is saying. I was reading through this going, man, my mom and dad taught me, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> Jesus does not abide by that. Man, there's no codependency in him at all. This is a church that he has nothing nice to say about. I'm nothing. I'm not about the church. We'll, we'll, we'll divide that up here in a moment and show you what he's saying. But he has nothing nice to say about this church. In fact, he says, this church, you guys, you know what? You're just dead. You're dead. Listen to what he says. Verse 2. Wake up! Wake up! <laughs> I said that, but maybe some of you need to wake up. <laughs> he says, wake up. Wake up in what? And strengthen what remains. That means at one point there was something there. And right now there's only a little bit of life there. And it is about to die. 
Wake up and start to strengthen what remains. Man, Joni and I, we, just, we, we got started really late and we planted some plants in the garden in the backyard. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, right away, it was really hot. And so these plants started to wilt and wither. And, you know, I don't know if we got them planted too late. But they came to this point where it looked like, man, there was only a thread of life left in them. And so, you know, Joni's out there nurturing them and watering them, probably killing them with water. But we're... <laughs> We're trying to do everything we can to get what little bit of life is in there to grow so that these plants can become everything that they're supposed to be. Little bit of life, come on, take hold, come hold on to this. You know what? He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And then he said this, he said in verse 3, he said, remember then. Come on, church, remember then. Remember what? Remember what you received and heard. This is a church that had received from the Lord. This is a church that had heard the gospel. They had heard about the Holy Spirit and the pouring out that God had provided. This was a New Testament church. They had received and heard. And he said, remember then what you've received and heard, because in that is the only vein, the only little bit of life that you're going to find is in what you heard, what you received. And he says, keep it and repent. And he says, if you will not wake up, wake up and what? He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers and overcome, or overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never. Now again, there is a lot of controversy in this statement. Please understand that, that this is from Jesus, and if you look up what he, in the, the original text, this is what he meant. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. For who? For he who conquers and overcomes. Now, again, it doesn't match with a lot of things that I've, you know, always grown up believing theologically. And, and again, you, can, you look this up. You search this out. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer as to whether Jesus, whether there will be or won't be people whose names are blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. I'm not going into the once saved, always saved doctrine here. What I'm saying is that when he says, for you that stand faithful and do this, that I will not blot you, your name out of the Lamb's book of life, my first thought is, wow. Then there are some that he will. Again, you, you, you look that out. Again, I'm not trying to become controversial in this or not. This is just what the word says. He said, and, and he says that, that, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. Listen, isn't it cool to know that Jesus knows the names of the faithful? Yes. He knows their names. He knows the number of hairs on their head. And before his angels. Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you help us over the next few weeks to rightly divide it to hear what you have to say. Lord, these words are so powerful. Yeah, Lord God, we want to know. 
Even if it's not what we want to hear, Lord, it's what we need to hear. So speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So we'll, we'll, over the next few weeks, unpack what Jesus is saying to the church in all of this. But one of the things that I, I felt like was really important that we contemplate, each of us, it's important for us to consider, what does Jesus have to say to our church? And again, I'm just going to be, as pastor, I'm just going to be uh, humble and honestly vulnerable. What would he say to our church? And will we have ears to hear? Amen. Would he bring to our church a compliment? Would he bring to our church a rebuke? Would he bring a correction? Would he, would he criticize us? But those questions then lead us to something that's a little more even intimate or personal because if Jesus was going to write a letter to you, what would he say to you individually? Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? What would he say to your family? Because again, this letter is very specific. Meaning Jesus has something specific to say. And in this letter, there is not one thing, as I said, that's encouraging about the church. Nothing. There's nothing that's praiseworthy in this letter to the church. He's just saying, basically, he's saying, you know what? You guys have become a bad, you guys have become a dead church. And I think this letter to Sardis should be almost called the dead church. He rebukes them. But he doesn't mention the heresy like he did in other letters. I would think if there was you know, false doctrine that was being taught, he would have mentioned it. But he doesn't mention any teaching of false doctrine. He doesn't mention that they were in, in suffering. I think he would have mentioned that if there had. He did that before. Do you know what I think has going on here? I think that the people in the church at Sardis became their own worst enemy. Because church, let's face it, we are all our own worst enemy. That is why we need the Holy Spirit in our life. That is why we need the power of God in our life. Because we just have this way of self-destructing and going from life to death. And he, he, he doesn't, you know, he's telling this church that they can't cast blame on anyone else. They're not being persecuted. There's no false doctrine or persecution of poverty. There's, all that stuff, they can't blame anyone. And Jesus is pretty much calling it out. And, and really what it comes down to, again, I believe... And we'll talk about this over the next few weeks. But this is what I, I believe, that in this, these people, they all became their own worst enemy because they allowed themselves to come, as people of God, to come to a place where they just don't care. Yep. Yep. What happens to those people that are out there that don't know the Lord? I don't care. What happens to people that, that are unsaved? I don't care. What happens to these people that are suffering? I don't care. What happens to these people that are bound in addiction? I don't care. 
This dead church that became completely and totally indifferent towards others. Allowing themselves to become hard-hearted, stiff-necked, because they just didn't care about anybody else. They didn't want to turn and look at anybody else. They didn't want to see anybody else. They were just spiritually dead. And that's a tragedy when that happens to a church. Do you know, just in the United States alone, in the United States, uh, they have got, go ahead and hit that next one. 3,500 churches a year die and close in the United States of America. Again, I'll be vulnerable with these things. Have you been in a church like that? Have you ever been to a church or been by a church or seen a church where you drive by and there's just nothing going on? There's never anybody there. There's never anybody coming. There's never anybody that's going. There's never anybody that's, you know, getting saved. There's nobody that's serving others. There's no baptisms that are happening. I mean, it's just dead. It's just a church going through the motions. And that's exactly what's happened to this church in Sardis. Now, in contrast, you've got over here the temple of Artemis. And at the temple of Artemis, there's cars coming and going all the time. There's people pulling up. There's people that are coming for all sorts of different reasons, doing all sorts of different things. Large numbers of people that are coming and going and flocking to and from the temple of Artemis. Why? Because people were committed. They were committed to their demonism. They were committed to their demonic worship. They were committed to the pagan worship of the environment. They were committed to their pagan worship of mother goddess. They were committed to their pagan worship of things. They were, they were worshiping created things like they had power rather than the God who had the power to create those created things. And they were very dedicated, very devoted. Yet now over here you've got this church church that started off and okay you know did pretty good but now they've gotten to this place where you know what it's really not about Jesus anymore it's about going through the motions my religious rituals it's not about people anymore and when that happens a dead church becomes a church that doesn't care about Jesus and doesn't care about people and in verse 1 basically tells them, and you keep on meeting, though. You, you keep on just getting together and going through the motions that are basically just rituals, but there's no life in your meetings. Outwardly, there's this form, this appearance of godliness, this form of care, but inwardly, there's no passion. Inwardly, it's a passionless, hopeless, uncaring, empty, dead church. I mean, again, don't raise your hand. How many of you have been to a church service like that? I was like, man, what are we doing here? I don't, uh, what's the purpose? Who are we reaching? Why do we exist? What's going on? It's just, just church filled with people just going through the motions. You know, we see that a lot 
in, in a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, but, uh, you know, it's like somebody who's, like, born into the church. Their parents have been dragging them to church since they were just, you know, a, a few days old, and they're in church, and they're in church, and they're just literally walking through the motions. For many, it comes to a place where I'm just following my mom and dad's God. I'm following after my mom and dad's rituals. I'm following after their religious activities because I've got no sense of relationship in my life at all. There's no fire in me. There's no passion in me. There's no desire to do what God has called me to do. It's just this, this, this going through the motions, and, and I'm lifeless, and I'm passionless, and I need the fire of God there's just nothing there though and that's exactly what was going on here in Sardis and and church I challenge you is that what's happened in you he goes on to say this he goes on to say that there are a faithful few who will wear white I love this He says in verse 4, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. Now, he's not talking about the church. He's talking about the individuals. There are still a few names, and I love this because he knows their names. And they are people, individuals. There are those that he sees. And he's got, he says, those who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There are a few faithful Christians, and he sees them. He sees where they are, and he knows their name. What's interesting is in this region here today, there are only a few faithful Christians still today. Well, here they are 2,000 years earlier. There's only a few faithful Christians that were there in that day, a few faithful people that love Jesus, and still today it's the same way. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? I know that there are a few people there, and, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to broad brush everybody. I just want to broad brush almost everybody. There are a few of you that I see, though, and I recognize what's happening in you. I see what's going on in your heart. I see what's happening in your life. And I want to commend you, faithful few, those of you who are walking with me. And and let me also say this, that this is the truth. Even in the most dead, most compromised, most uncaring, most hard-hearted, most horrendous churches there are, there are, are still a few people in there that are good people that really do love the Lord. Good people that, that love Jesus, that walk after Jesus, that serve him. People that are there and they care. They care and that's why they're there is because they care. And it's sometimes a horrible place to be and you're one of those people. When you're the one that's there, you're doing everything because you care and nobody else cares. But you know if you leave, then there's nobody that cares. And you're not willing to do that. But if you stay, nobody's going to care. Nobody does care. Nobody cares what's happening and nobody cares what's going on. And you're in this lose-lose scenario. But I want you to know that even though that's that's the way we feel, I want you to know that Jesus honors those people and Jesus acknowledges those people and Jesus knows their name. He knows who they are. And he tells the faithful, he says, if you'll continue to walk with me, you can wear white. And you can be with me. Otherwise, he said, judgment would come like a thief in the night. I find this interesting. There was a story that right before this letter was written, this area was for, known for the gold and gold rush that was there. And so they had these reserves of gold that were just 
potted up and, and everybody thought that, oh, it was as secure as could be. Well, one night in the middle of the night, a thief came and robbed these gold reserves and took huge portions of gold that nobody ever thought could be stolen, that nobody ever thought would be stolen. Yet they were because they never thought a thief would come in the night. They thought that their riches, they thought that their gold was safe, that nobody would ever come against that, that it would never happen. And in light of that, Jesus is talking about this place where he says, you know what, I will come like a thief in the night. He's saying, I could come at any moment. I know that he would say this to us today. I could come at any moment. And I am a sovereign, almighty God. And I can judge you. And I can judge you according to my judgments, not yours. Your life is not your own. Your life is not promised and you are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed another hour. You're not guaranteed another minute. So don't hesitate. Don't delay. Have a sense of passion. Have a sense of longing. Have a sense of urgency. Have a fire in your belly. Come on in and let's begin to kindle what life is there and begin to hold on to what God is saying and come and walk with me in white. It's an invitation that he's extending. And when we talk about this color of white in the Bible, the color of white, it shows purity, it shows cleansing, it shows forgiveness. And when Jesus Christ died, he cleansed us from sin. He cleansed us from unrighteousness. So church, when, when Jesus Christ, when you called out to him, you weren't just cleaned you were made new. Amen. You were made totally clean. It wasn't just forgiveness that he brought. He brought cleansing and he washed you pure. He washed you white as snow. And we are clean in Christ. And that means this, that you are no longer defined by who you determine yourself to be. You are no longer defined by the things that happened to you. You are no longer defined by what a parent said about you. You're no longer defined by what somebody at school told you. You're no longer defined by the sin in your life. You're no longer defined by the sick things you did, by the wrong things you did, by the painful things you did. You're no longer defined by the people you hurt. You're no longer defined by the people that hurt you. You're no longer defined by what was done through you. You're no longer defined by what has been done to you. You are now defined by what God has done through Jesus Christ for you. Amen. That is who you are. And today, listen, it doesn't matter how you feel, because I would imagine that there are probably people in this place today that are sitting here and you feel dirty. Because there's sin in your life and you know it. You feel guilty. You feel condemned. And Jesus would look at you. Jesus would have me say to you that in this moment, by his death, he says, I love you. And my death was for your sin. And I take your sin. If you'll give it to me, I'll take your sin and I will give you my righteousness. I will take what I don't deserve to carry and I will give you what you do not deserve to receive. Why? Because I love you. Church, that's a, an exchange that only God can make. And in the Bible, that's what it tells us when we're 
in the Bible, when, when the Bible talks about us wearing white, it shows that we wear his righteousness. We wear his purity, his sinlessness. We, 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 we wear the perfection of Christ. And it's all because Jesus, Jesus makes us clean. Jonathan and Sarah, would you guys come on back up? So here, he's saying to the church there, and I know he would say it to the church here today. And I want you please to listen to me because this letter and all the things that he's saying, I, I, again, I, I don't care what doctrine, theology, what all, listen, this is a letter that was written to the church, to the blood-bought, redeemed, born-again, spirit-filled church. And it came from the mouth of Jesus Christ, the resurrected, glorified King of all kings, who came onto a mountain into a cave to speak to a man, to give him the letter, showing that he sees what's going on, and he's sharing the truth. And this is what he's telling the church. If you come to me, I'm not going to berate you. And I'm not going to belittle you. And I'm not going to cast you out. And I'm not going to curse you. And I'm not going to harm you. And I'm not, I don't have my hand back ready to thump you. I'm not going to condemn you. If you'll come to me, I'm going to cleanse you. And I'm going to make you whole. And Jesus would say this to some of you today. If you'll come to me, I can help you fix that lifestyle you're stuck in. If you'll come to me, church, if you'll come to me, I can change that heart that's become a problem to you. That Jesus, he, he would say, listen, I can change your heart and I can give you a brand new life. And that is an invitation that he gives to the church. See, I know that there are some of you in this place today, many of you in this place today, that you have sin in your life. Sin that's hidden, sin that's not been exposed, sin that you think is secret. Nobody else sees me watching that pornography in my bedroom. What's it hurting? Nobody else knows about the affair that I'm having. Nobody else knows about the thoughts in my mind. Nobody else knows about the lust that I'm struggling with. Nobody else knows. We think it's a secret and we're okay as long as it's secret sin. But I want you all to know, Jesus sees it all. There's nothing that's secret before him. There's nothing that you can do that's secret to him. Jesus sees all and he knows all. And often we come into a service like this and we think, well, I'm the church, I'm the blah, blah, I've got brothers and sisters and I shouldn't have to this and that. And we just really start to get to a place where our sin starts to sear the spirit in us and we begin to just walk through the motions. And we come in and I can't confess my sins. What will people think? Good Lord, what will he think? We don't want to confess our sins because we feel like confessing our sins means I got caught. 
But I think the truth for a lot of people in their sin in the church, they don't want to confess their sin because they don't want to stop doing it. Church, what do we do? We, well, I begin to blame others. I've, I said it in weeks past. We, we begin to create our own doctrine. Build our own theology. We come to a place where we, we deny it. We ignore it. We bury our head to it. It's not so bad. We downplay how, how awful it is in the sight of the Lord. We try to hide it. We try to excuse it. Listen, we'll do everything, especially as the church. And this is a message to the church. So I'm going to talk to you, church body. We'll do everything with our sin except confess and repent. Which is exactly what Jesus demands we do. Even in the church. Will you bow your heads with me? I just want to take a moment and pray. And you can deal with this with the Lord. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and thank you, God, for the grace and mercy that you show, the, the love you have for us. And I thank you that you love each and every one of those that are here, each and every one, Lord, with ears that have heard. I pray in Jesus' name that they would receive with gladness the opportunity that you've put before us. Lord, let us not grow angry because we've been called out, but Lord, let us, Father God, find joy and peace and hope where you have given us opportunity to be set free. Lord, I thank you for this time right now, and I thank you, Father God, for the word that you're bringing to each individual, for those that are in need, for those that are already, Lord God, walking in that worthiness, walking in the white, righteous robes of Jesus. But I pray, Lord God, for those today that are struggling, for those that have a, 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 a line of life, a line of hope. Oh God, I pray that today they would Hold on to that line. Hold on to that, Lord. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I really believe this is what Jesus is saying for today. Just bring it to me. Stop all the pretense and bring it to me. And I will embrace you. I will deal with the sin. I will clothe you in righteousness. I will clothe you in white. I will do those things. And I will open the door for you to be able to live a new life, a holy life as one of my people. He extends his hand to you and say, come, follow me. And that's the invitation that Jesus extends. That's the invitation that Jesus extends to the church. And the question is this. Do we have ears to hear? What you do with this message in this time is between you and God. But I want you to know that the altar is open. If you need to bring some things to the altar, then you need to come to the altar and lay it down. You need to do what God and only God, or let God do what only God can do for you. If 
there's some struggles in your life, what will you do? Will you hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to you? Or will you reject that? And take the chance of living out the fate of being dead. You take this moment with the Lord.
much I love you, how privileged I am to be a part of a body like this and to be a part of a church that loves the Lord. So I want to send you out. So church isn't over. Church is about to begin. So go be the church. Amen? God bless you. I love you. Have a great day today. Go be the church.